Welcome back. I'm Brady Volpe, founder of NimbleThis and a Volp firm. Our topic today, cable next-gen technology and strategies, which happened last a uh, couple weeks ago by uh, light reading. We're going to go over a roadmap for DOCSIS 4.0 over and 3.1 and also covered that. With us today is John Downey. And we're going to move into the slides here for cable next generation. Um, so if anyone did not uh, see, cable next generation happened on March 15th and 16th of this year. It was put on by Light Reading. It was an absolutely fantastic virtual show that happened. And I want to go over and kind of highlight some of the presentations that happened there. All these presentations are still live and available uh, through virtual playback. And if you look in the YouTube video and the meeting links below, there is a link to that everyone can go and still sign up if you didn't if you missed the event. I highly encourage everyone to go and view the videos that are online. We're not going to be going into detail on every video that was there or every live event that happened, but we want to cover some of the highlights just to really entice everyone to go back and watch some of the some of the videos. So I'm going to pull up a slide right now with just the very first track that went on, which um, this one uh, track from Light Reading uh, is the Network and Architectural Infrastructure track. In this track, we had some really great panelists, John Dickinson uh, from Just Digital Transformations, Jeff Finkelstein from Cox, Colin Howell from Vesema, John Schooner from Cable Labs, and Peter Wolf from Casa Systems, and of course, Alan Bresnick was the uh, moderator from Light Reading. He also was one who pulled all of this together. A big focus of the panel was FMA, the Flexible Mac Architecture. So this is a new spec that came out from Cable Labs, and it gives us the ability to do a lot more modularity in, in our DOCSIS architecture. Um, this was one of the slides that was presented by the panelists on the presentation, and they kind of went into detail of some of the cool things that we can do using FMA and sort of extend out our DOCSIS architecture. John, I don't know if there's anything you want to discuss on FMA, uh, anything that you guys are looking at as I go into this. No, I mean, I I promoted DAA okay. in, in any form or fashion. If I can get the analog fiber convert to digital fiber, it's in our best interest as a whole industry. Whether you do remote fire or remote MacFi, I want to be technology agnostic. I just want to say, so, hey, if you go digital fiber, we're John, good to go. I, uh, unfortunately, I guess we're not getting any audio from your end uh, through the rest of the speakers. So I'm, I'm just going to have to go ahead and, and uh, go on with, uh, with the overview of the, of the rest of the slide. But, so apologies on that, man. Um, so the cool thing about FMA is it, it does give us a – oh, they can? Oh, okay, John, I apologize for interrupting, but now we do have all audio from you. Kyle, thanks so much for letting us know that we can hear John now. So, John, apologies for the interruption. I'll let you continue. <laughs> so, like I said, uh, I think DAA converting analog fiber to digital fiber is in our best interest, uh, especially if we want to do 204 upstream. I know there's some people looking at uh, EDR, which is baseband digital reverse or enhanced digital reverse uh, for the upstream 204. Uh, anything I can do to get away from laser clipping is our best interest. Um, with that said, I don't care if people do remote fi, remote Mac fi, uh, as long as they go digital fiber. I think that's one of the quickest conversions or maybe the best bang for our buck. Um, in regards to light reading, was there no chat functionality with this thing? Yeah, you know, there wasn't chat functionality, which was kind of a um, something a I think we were missing because that was yeah. something that was interesting in, in the other shows. Uh, another thing, so we talked about in this presentation was the also the digital transformation, how digital access architecture will continue to tran uh, transition. So we see like in, in 2020, um, we have a sl slow migration, only about 30% penetration. But as we go up to 2027, we're going to get um, you know almost up to 70 70% penetration of DAA. And and this will we'll see how this is important later on when we talk about DOCSIS 4.0 and and that growth in the market and some of the things that some of the other speakers spoke about. Um, there's you know there's kind of going to be a slow migration into DOCSIS 4.0 for a number of reasons that we'll see going on. But I think part of this shows how important 
DAA is for us as an industry in helping support the, the massive amounts of traffic that we had both pre-pandemic, during the pandemic, and, and even the post-pandemic, we're in expecting that traffic is going to continue to just massively grow over time. So as we moved into the panel, I, I, there's a great panel. I, these slides was really just a setup for the panel, and the panelists had a number of comments on this. So I think, you know, you were really spot on with your comment, John, removing the analog optics, and Jeff Finkelstein uh, talked about this. Removing the analog optics gives us a 4 to 7 dB improvement uh, overall from, you know, this gets right into the phi level. Really one of the objectives of some of this is, is getting that analog optics improvement out. Yeah, and that's just a straight up uh, analog to digital that has... On top of that, you don't get laser clipping with digital optics. Correct. And you get longer distances with digital optics. So, yeah, there's, I did a whole thing on uh, the power of DAA and, and the pros. I mean, there are some cons. I mean, the, the biggest con of digital fiber is you've got to get rid of your analog channels. Yep. If you still have analog TV, what are you going to do, right? You got to get so, rid of them somehow. Absolutely. And John Dickinson made that same point. He's like, this is going to be a transition to all IP. And that's part of the challenge of this migration. We have to get rid of not, not just the analog, but any, any of the, anything analog associated with that, which also includes the analog television content. So everything has to go to IP. That's a challenge for operators in, in more ways than one. So, um, so let, me, let me clarify that. Not technically all IP, because we can still have um, MPEG-2. Yes. You can have digital video that's not IP, MPEG-2. So you can do docs to set-top gateway. You can do uh, 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 some legacy set-top box, but then you got to worry about the out-of-band signaling for the, out the set-top box, right? Correct. But when you say IP video, yeah, that's the panacea. But if I go all IP video, everything's IP, then that actually... Begs the question: Should I just do GPON or EPON? Well, and that's I think a, that's the con, right? To EPON and GPON is you can't even do uh, legacy digital video, meaning yeah. MPEG two with and an I, IP. I think for many operators, they're in that world where they have both part of their network is all fiber optics and part of their network is doc all docs. So having an all IP network really makes it a nice pathway so that you can, Correct. you really can be agnostic. You know, it doesn't matter whether it's DOCSIS, whether it's fiber, I can just transition, push my data to DOCSIS and yeah. fiber. So IP then, yeah. just makes that so much smoother for operators. Yeah, then, then the, 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 uh, the, I guess, deciding factor becomes uh, ease of access, how quickly can I get it up, up and operational and cost, obviously, right? right? So, I mean, if I'm in a rural America, you're not going to run fiber to um, 10 houses that are all a mile apart. Yes, I mean, exactly. It's not very economical. Yeah, so that, and again, that's one of the reasons we still have DOCSIS is <laughs> one of many reasons. It's, it's yeah. great for rural areas. It's great for all the places that coax has already run. Greenfields makes obvious sense for to push fiber. And, and that was also a theme in this next-gen presentation is we're not going to push fiber everywhere because it's too cost too costly, but greenfields yeah. make the obvious place we're going to go. When we got into FMA versus remote FI and MAC FI, we had a number of comments. You know, there's a lot of lack of standardization on our MAC FI, so that makes it challenging for operators. FMA gives us the interoperability that we need as an industry. FMA gives us the ability to also extend our networks to PON, to 5G, to a lot of the other technologies that we don't necessarily have in the MAC FI environment. So, you know, FMA. That's a lot of neat things that we can do with it that we didn't necessarily have before. Peter Wolf then went on to even talk more about what FMA can do in the head end. Um, things that, you know, the improvements from RF, RMD architectures over traditional RPD architectures gives us anywhere from a 7 to 1 to a 9 to 1 consolidation and rack space. Now, of course, with that goes cooling and heating and all the other power savings that we get in the head end. So tremendous opportunities there. And then DAA allows us to um, install remote FI shells, which that also gives us the performance improvements without touching the plant. So we remote FI shelf, that's not, we still have analog optics, um, but we have other cooling savings improvements and things like that. 
Um, so moving into the next track, this is this was still part of day one. So again, I would really want to encourage everyone to look at that link in the in the uh, uh, in the channel for YouTube. You can sign up for light reading. You can watch all these videos. There's uh, the next one, network uh, track one, network architecture. This was two thirty to three p.m. More great panels and speakers. Uh, James Brannon uh, from. Uh, Cisco, yes, you, you may know this person, John. Rob <laughs> Flask from the Avi. Robin Lavoie from Kajiko. Paolao from Midcontinent. And Jay Rolls from Broadband Success Partners. So they were all, again, on, on a panel. This one focused on 10G. Uh, I'm not going to go over all the success stories on here, but this is really just focusing on how many MSOs, cable operators, are really focused on pumping out 10 gig, one gig to our subscribers. Um, getting into some of the details, so you know what's the pressure here? AT&T is not only offering gigabit service, but now they're starting to come in and offering five gigabit, even 10 gigabit service in some areas. And now we, as the cable industry, really have to start talking about how we can offer gig and even higher services. And I've got some slides, so everyone has to watch at the end. At the end of the at the end of this slide deck, I've, I sh we have some really nice slides from ATX that show how we can compete in a, in a 5 gig and even 10 gig arena against telcos. So Jay Rolls talks about DOCSIS 4. It's really closer to the end of 2020. And this, he talked about chip shortages and challenges that uh, vendors are having with getting DOCSIS 4 out. So this really pushes us on, you know, DOCSIS 3.1 is going to propel us and, and help get us to that DOCSIS 4.0 closer to the end of 2020. Robin, the, end of, yeah. the end of the 2020s. So the end, yeah, the end of 2020s, right? Not yeah. 2020 the year, <laughs> 2020s the decade. Yes, so Robin Lavoie from Kajiko, he says, you know, what does it mean to upgrade to DOCSIS 4.0 from a cable operator standpoint? It's new equipment, new tools, new training, lots of money, and it won't apply to all networks. You know, not every network is going to be upgraded to DOCSIS 4.0, and I think that's a pretty important point for everyone to realize. A lot of networks are still going to be DOCSIS 3.1. Who knows? Maybe some networks will continue to be DOCSIS 3 as we go on. 10G, as Rob Flask ind indicated, isn't just DOCSIS 4.0 either when we're talking about it. It's upgrading outside plant, it's fiber training test equipment, fiber wireless DOCSIS specific training, and a lot of switching between different technologies or specializing in single technologies. And there's a lot of tools which are critical to deliver the service to the customer. So and I think Rob's points are all Absolutely important. We think sometimes, you know, hey, DOCSIS 4, we just upgrade the CMTS, we upgrade the modems, but it's absolutely not that simple. There's a lot that has to happen. We see, we'll see that in some other slides um, to get to DOCSIS 4.0. And then finally, right. the operational costs will be higher for DOCSIS 4.0, which Robin Lavoie from Kajiko also pointed out. We have to activate a lot of telemetries for every active there's, we need to innovate to be smart. And, and as he points out, if we decide to go to DOCSIS 4.0, it's because we did it based on proper financial analysis. It's not just because we did it because the technology is cool. We did it in key areas. Maybe it's because of competitive areas. Maybe it's because of traffic driving the needs to grow there to meet our subscriber demands. But, you know, DOCSIS 4.0 will be intentional. And, and there's a lot of different reasons to, to make those. So absolutely we have to do that. Yeah, you don't deploy technology for the sake of technology. And the, I used to, you know, everyone always quoted the cautionary tale of beta versus VHS. <laughs> so which one flooded the market first and who jumped behind a certain uh, ship or whatever or, or group or whatever. Um, and that's the one that might win out. So you you decide which one is going to win in the end of the day. And then you keep, you know, Doxus has a roadmap. So it's nice to know it's there, even though you might not need it. Like you might say, well, I can do Doxus 3.1. I can keep my analog plan. I can keep my N plus five amplifier cascade. Um, and I can milk that cow as long as I want. Uh, and if I have competitive pressure, then I'm going to decide, well, what can I quickly implement to get 10 gig on the downstream? 
Well, yeah. maybe I could do a Doxis. Maybe I have to go fiber just to a couple customers just to satisfy those people and cherry pick them, you know? Absolutely. So um, before we go to the next slide, I'd just like to thank everyone who's watching. If you like what you're seeing, please do subscribe, hit the thumbs up bell button, and click the notification bell so you get notified when we pump out our podcasts and live streams. Um, so, John, I want to take a, just a couple minutes. We have some questions in our chat panel, so we'll, we'll get to those. Um, one of the questions is, uh, I want to make sure I get to Tech Junkie. So, um, Tech Junkie's been helping letting us know your audio was cutting out, John, um, but I, I think that's all working. So, he says, um, there's a upstream transmit power question that he had, and, and let me just get to that here. Uh, he, so, the, he says, upstream transmit power... Why would we want upstream transmit power to be at 45 dBmV rather than 38 dBmV? And, and so we've covered this many times in the past. So, but it, you know, it's just like one of those things that I think we, we want to keep reinforcing. So in, in, in we, have a, we have a noise floor and, and that we want our cable modems to transmit above that noise floor. There's kind of like a sweet spot. And, and we've always said that sweet spot is to have the cable modem transmit between 40 and 50 dBmV. That, that makes sure you're at your cable modem, let me get into the frame here, your cable modem is transmitting high enough above the noise floor. So you're saying you're like, your cable modem might be transmitting at 38 dBmV, which is just slowly, slightly a, a below where we, we recommend that optimum transmit. But, but where, that, where that theory falls apart, and people don't think about this, they're thinking about downstream where the higher level you receive at the house, higher above your noise floor, the better MER. But in the upstream, you have noise funneling. So regardless of what the modem transmits, the noise floor is the noise floor for everyone, and it's EMTS C0. So just because you transmit more doesn't mean it's any better at the head end. The upstream is still the same CNR, which is same probably the noise. same MER. So here's where it works to our advantage. If I force the modem to transmit hotter, what am I doing to force the modem to transmit hotter? I'm introducing attenuation. Sure. If I introduce attenuation at the tap, I drop all the noise from that house. So if the noise is coming from low-value tap houses, that means the noise floor and head end drop for everybody. Because you're because attenuating the noise from that house. Exactly. That's the point. Like, I, I can flip this. I'm going to flip the script right here. All right, I have a technician go in the house, and uh, John Downey told me this modem will transmit better at 48. So they put a pad right on the modem. Wrong place to do put any the good. pad. It's a, it's, it doesn't do any good because the noise comes in after the pad. You know the noise is coming from the house or the drop. Correct. So I need to put the padding at the tap. So I need a higher value tap. But the tap value is based for downstream considerations. So now I need either a step attenuation or I need a tap that's equalized. So I need to make sure that my taps have more upstream loss than maybe downstream loss for those low-value taps, like a two-port 4 dB tap. Well, it's not going to be a 4 dB tap. It might be 4 dB tap at 1.2 gigahertz, but I need it to be maybe a 17 dB loss at 5 megahertz. Correct. So they make taps that do that. But, but and this is going to be really important for the next couple of slides that I have coming up, what, what do you get when you're thinking about upgrading your plant to an 85 megahertz return or maybe a 204 megahertz return? What do you get today if you have a 42 megahertz return or maybe a 65 in, megahertz return? What do you get in regards to what? To a, to a, a reverse pad because the pads that you're talking about are pads oh, yeah. that only That's attenuate why, the return. Yeah, yeah. That's why I don't want to do step attenuations. I don't, don't want to do ta taps that just cut off because you're introducing group delay. You're introducing a filter, which introduces group delay. And then you got to change it all out when you change your diplex filter. Correct. So I'm like, I would rather someone do a equalized tap or cable simulated tap from five all the way to 1.2 gigahertz. Extrapolate it all Perfect. the way out. And then there's no internal filter. There's no group delay. You go from 42 to 65 to 85 to 204. You don't care. And then you don't have to change it exactly. when, when we make plant upgrades, which we're going so, to be so, talking about. And, and so my rule of thumb was if I could design my modems to transmit 48 dBmV plus or minus three, that would create the best overall MER, CNR, SNR, lowest noise floor. So there's another advantage to having a modem transmit on the high end. 
What if a modem is on a 4 dB tap and it's normally transmitting 35 and it's happy? What happens if that modem goes into la-la land and starts ranging on the wrong UCD? It like went offline and it, it happened to say, hey, I got these pseudo random UCDs upstream channel descriptors and I'm going to try to range on upstream four and it happens to be at 40 megahertz or whatever it is. And it's not even physically attached to that set of upstreams because of the architecture. Because you can make a Mac domain have two fiber nodes in one Mac domain. Right. So this modem could be on the wrong Mac C or a wrong fiber node. On the wrong CMTS. Or well, not, well, yeah. not on the wrong. Yeah, basically. Yeah. So it's it, it locks on a downstream. Yeah, it locks on a downstream and says, hey, I'm going to range on this upstream. That's not even part of that node. That upstream happened to be part of a second node. Correct. So now it's just ranging. And hey, I remember my last level was 35. So I'll try 35. Doesn't work. I'll try 36, 37, 38, 39. And it, it ranges all the way up to 55. Room. Yeah. Now it ranges up to 55, which is 20 dB higher than what it needed. So now it causes laser clipping for everybody else on the same node. All subscribers on that node he, are now impaired. He, fi he finally fails and he tries a different UCD and then maybe he comes online properly. Yeah. So it's kind of twofold. If I design my plant correctly, then I have enough attenuation that the modem would never have enough headroom to range 20 dB hotter than it should be. You understand? Like, if I know it has enough attenuation that it comes online at 45, well, it only has 10 dB of headroom before it would, like, finally give up and maybe try the correct UCD. Yeah, so there's actually two benefits that we're trying to achieve with this. One, keep the modem out of the noise floor. Two, mm -hmm. make sure the modem doesn't have excessive transmit power that it's going to end, end up causing laser clipping, causing problems for other subscribers on that correct. network. Correct. All right. So, uh... I'll have to catch up with questions here shortly. A bunch more have come in. Um, I want to go back to the slide here and cover the second part of the network track because um, this is where I think it gets interesting. And um, Jay, Jay Rolls started talking about what he called DOCSIS 3.5 or juiced up DOCSIS 3.1. I like the words he's using there. And he's where he's talking about um, DOCSIS 3.1 taking advantage of the high split to 1.2 gigahertz. This gives us the capacity to do about 4.5 gigabits per second in the downstream and 1.6 gigabits per second in the upstream. So, I mean, we're talking symmetrical gig service, one gig down, one gig up, or multiple gigs down, one gig up. And we can do this at about $100 a home's past or $50 um, per home passed in deferred node splits. And I think that's just something we've not necessarily talked about before, John, but something is, you know, really, I think is important for operators to think about when we start um, expanding the, the networks that, you know, not having to do a, a node split or deferring when you have to do a node split can really save a massive amount of money uh, by taking advantage of DOCSIS 3.1, specifically by using OFDM in the downstream and OFDMA in the upstream, because that gives you a massive amounts of capacity. So that can, that can really defer the time in which you have to do a node split. And I think, I think that's an interesting concept to wrap your head around, depending on, you know, as a, as a cable operator. I mean, and I've said this, years ago um it's great to do a nose split so you have smaller pockets of people that affect each other less noise funneling and all that but if you drop down and do a node split and you're only like 150 200 homes per node then you have to come up with connectivity for all those upstreams and downstreams so you're buying more cmts's or upstream ports or you're combining them back again so what was the point of separating a node in the field if you're just combining it back again in the head end Yes, each node would have a better MER, but then if you're combining, you're combining the noise back together. So when you look at capacity planning and you know you have to provide a higher peak speed, well, a higher peak speed means the area can be a bigger area. Right. I don't need to do a node split. Node splits are for aggregate speed and everyone's sharing that speed. If I don't want to share, I make smaller areas. But if you have to provide a bigger pipe anyway, a bigger pipe means more people can share the pipe. So if I have to provide a high peak speed, that means it's a big pipe. That means maybe I can keep my node at 500 homes per node, and many people can share the bigger pipe. And then in turn, I can sell a bigger peak speed because only four or five people are taking it. Right. Maybe 10 or whatever. Very good. Um, so... Part of this uh, juiced up DOCSIS 3.1 um, may even we may even go out to 1.8 gigahertz. Um, 
J. Rolls does not think that will be even much more expensive than 1.2 gigahertz gear, which I'm pretty excited to hear that. I, I thought 1.8 gigahertz would be a bit harder. Uh, when we talk about DOCSIS for rollout, um, oh, stop, like, stop, stop. Do you, oh, do you really believe that though? I don't know. I'm, I, you know, I haven't. I mean, uh, what do you mean by gear, right? I mean, RF amplifiers, no. Yeah, but what about the RF plant? My God, all the taps have to be changed out. Every taps and in some in some cases it's going to be coax cable. Yeah, in some cases it's going to be coax cable and connectors. connectors. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I, so, I just I don't know. I don't know. I think the jury will be out on that one. I was actually kind of surprised because um, you you and I both spent our time with a lot of RF gear. Um, yeah. I always thought 1.8 would be a lot more difficult than 1.2, but I, I think we'll see. That's an extra 600 megahertz. So. That's a lot, man. Yeah. Uh, DOCSIS 4 rollout we, was discussed. Um, unlocking the upstream, moving the splitter, um, fiber and MDU using lower cost technologies to convert customers one by one. And then I think the interesting point here that was made on the DOCSIS 4 rollout is that if node plus zero is mandatory, this makes FDX full duplex DOCSIS extremely expensive. And there was some discussion around FDX versus extended spectrum DOCSIS. Um, FDX, if we can get, you know, what we've talked about, FDX amplifiers, then FDX becomes much more possible because it's not as expensive. And when you go to a node plus zero technology of no amplifiers after that, FDX becomes much more difficult. Well, I think we've I, talked I'm about still, that a lot. I'm still, I'm still evaluating what that first bullet point meant, moving splitter. I'm like, what splitter are we talking about? So I was taking In a lot house? of notes during these presentations, and <laughs> I don't. Or did he mean like moving? Well, I think it's moving, it's moving passives into plants. Yeah, moving passives and well, yeah, you have to get rid of the diplex filters as yeah. well. Yeah, and maybe that was it. Yeah, and then large as MSOs um, will be able to double fiber builds over the next several years. So, I mean, this was just kind of a topic that went on there. Um, MSOs have traditionally gone with very easy footprints on fiber. However, so so this is the big challenge here is MSOs want to do a lot of fiber build-outs. Corning has a one to two year order backlog on their fiber. So, I mean, this is a comment of both, this is between demand and also the challenges that we've had due to the pandemic. So Corning's really behind. So what MSOs want to do and what MSOs can do with fiber builds are two different things. And that was part of the, the uh, discussion here. So, you know, Greenfields, MSOs want to continue to be building that out, but getting the fiber is going to be a challenge to do that. Um, distributed access architecture is going to be the go-to choice. And um, cable is just the massive fiber deep opportunity there. So getting fiber is going to be hard, even if we want to continue to do that. So yeah, moving I, on, uh, go sometimes ahead. It's, sometimes it's timing and logistics yes. could be the, the dictate what's really is going to happen, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So that was, that was everything. Well, that was not everything. That was just two tracks that happened on the first day that I, I was um, really taking a lot of notes on. There was a lot that happened on the first day. And I apologize to all the, to all the speakers that I was not able to cover on the first day, but there was so much good content. Again, I just encourage everyone to get out there and, and cover that, uh, cover all the good content that happened. Um, so, uh, Lots happening on the chat room. Thanks uh, for everyone commenting on the chat. Um, so I see Tech Junkie, you indicated that you have to put a splitter and a pad on your modem. You're not getting any errors. As, as John indicated, you may want to move that pad as far out in your, in your network as you can. Maybe move it out to the ground block or as, uh, optimally as far out on that drop as you can. Get as far away basically from your modem as you can and that'll help improve your system well the, the problem with the regular pad is then he screws up his downstream signals yeah yeah that's you, you can't. <laughs> so keep an so, eye on your downstream too. <laughs> um so moving on to day two of the the light reading um the the next track that came out was uh um Actually, I'm not even going to go into it. I just want to go into the uh, one of the next presentations. I can't remember which track it is. I apologize, Dan, but Dan Whalen, CTO of ATX, he did such a nice job on putting together a couple slides. They had a theme of bowling, and although I'm not a great bowler, I, 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 I have bowled 
in the past a little bit. But his theme was talking about the splits. And, and there's bowling splits and there's cable splits. And they, they kind of made sense the way he presented these. So he talked about the 5-7 split. And if you've ever bowled before, you've, you've seen this pin split up where you have a you have the center split pin, which is which is your uh, your five pin and, and the seven pin in the le- left-hand corner. This one's not too hard to do sometimes. If you hit the center pin on the on the right-hand side, it'll go over and knock that pin down. So I kind of <laughs> like this analogy, right? It's it's like this is doable. If you and, don't hit it just right, it's not going to work. Is no, that no, that's right. But but it's still doable, right? You you can do this one. And this is where he talks about as an industry, we do the eighty-five megahertz return. So we go from a 42 or 65 up to an 85 megahertz return. And then we, we have a one gigahertz downstream. Many of us have one gigahertz downstreams already. And, and what he's showing here is, is that we have an, an upstream that gives us a 784 megabit upstream and a 1.5 gigabit per second downstream. Our advertised rates that we'd give to our subscribers is you can get a gig downstream and 100 megabits per second upstream. These these are like pretty good rates, but they're not yet competitive with, with what fiber is offering. Fiber, our competitors are offering gigabit symmetric service. So you know our five seven split, it's doable. You know if you're if you're uh, getting into bowling a little bit, you can kind of do this. The challenge is now getting into this next one, and this is the this is the seven ten split, which gets really kind of hard when if you're a bowler and you see this you have a pin on every corner like you have to be a pretty good bowler to hit that pin on either the left or the right shove it across and and knock down the pin but this you know if we pull this off in the industry we have a 204 megahertz return and we we have a gigahertz downstream maybe even a 1.2 gigahertz downstream now we have a pretty cool offering We can do 1,800 megabits per second in the upstream, and we can do 1.5 gigabit per second in the downstream. This gives us a billboard. This is what we can advertise to our subscribers. We can advertise a gigabit per second in the upstream and a gigabit per second in the downstream. This is the answer. Gigabit symmetrical service. This this is something that we can compete with head-to-head with telecom operators that are saying, hey, we have symmetrical gig service. And I, so I, I really like this slide because I think this is something that everyone can kind of wrap their brain around. Why do we want a 204 megahertz return and a gigabit downstream? You know, you know the other analogy here that I just picked up on, and maybe he, didn't, maybe he talked about, maybe he didn't. When you go to a higher split, the no man's land in the diplex filter is about 25%. So a 710 split has a bigger gap. So... 25% of 204 is 50 megahertz. Notice you have 50 megahertz of no man's land for the right. diplex filter. Between 204 back, and 258 yeah. megahertz. If you go back a slide, go back a slide, 85 megahertz, 25% of 85 would be what? Um, one, four, 85. Is, 25, yeah, 20 it's a, megahertz? It's like 20 megahertz? Yeah. It's, it's 20 a little megahertz. more than 20 megahertz. Yeah. About 30 megahertz there. Yeah. So as you increase your diplex filter split, the no man's land, I call it, you know, the gap becomes bigger, bigger and bigger. bigger and bigger, right. So you lose, you, lose, also. you lose bandwidth there whenever yeah. you go to the 710 split. And when we start talking about go Doxus 4.0 with a 396 megahertz upstream, it ends up being almost a 500 megahertz start frequency for downstream. Correct. So yeah, you end up with a big gap, which then you have to extend your downstream because you're eating into it so much. Yep, absolutely. So he had one more slide then, and, and I think... Uh, you know, ATX is getting a lot of promotion for me here. So, uh, but this is not sponsored by them, just for full disclosure. Uh, then we we get into Doxis 4.0, and again, I want to just want to remind everyone, as we said earlier, Doxis 4.0 is not until the late 2020s. That not 2020 the year, but 2020 the decade. So we're talking closer to 2030 here. But when we get into DOCSIS 4.0, this is when things get pretty exciting. Whether you're doing full duplex DOCSIS or ESD DOCSIS, we have an upstream that uh, can, you know, can go all the way up to 684 megahertz and a downstream that can go all the way up to 1.8 gigahertz. Now we have something that we're talking 6 gigabit per second in the upstream, 10 gigabit per second in a downstream. So as I mentioned at the beginning, AT&T is already talking 5 gig symmetrical in some markets. 
now we can be talking about multi-gig in the upstream, multi-gig in the downstream. Conceptually, we could offer a 5-gig service to a subscriber in the upstream and a 5-gig service to subscribers in the downstream, similar to what competitors are doing. But it's going to take us some time to get there. But this, this was the, the final slide from Dan, and I thought it was just a really nice slide. So it kind of painted a very nice roadmap of how we can get to multi-gig services in both directions. Again, I would encourage everyone to go and, and watch this presentation live or in, recorded uh, on Light Reading's NextGen site. Uh, link in the, in the description below. Very good presentation, very good overview of how we go from where we are today not able to do gig in the upstreams to where we can do multi-gig service in the upstream and the downstream. Any thoughts on that, John? Before I so, move into the next one? Yeah, so so what's kind of holding us back also is the CPE, customer premise equipment, the modems themselves. Yeah. You know, you can buy 3-1 modems today with a 204 filter, um, but the modems today either have Broadcom or Intel-based chipsets in them, and they'll support 32 single carrier qualm downstream with two OFDM blocks. On the upstream, they'll support eight single carrier qualm ATDMA channels and two OFDMA blocks. So if we want to offer a higher speed, the question is, if a household wants higher speed, I got to come up with a, a new modem that support, supports more than two blocks, or could I just offer two modems? Because technically, most people don't need a single service that needs five gig. There is no such, there's no application that uses five gig on one service flow. If I'm thinking about my household, it's thinking DVR, two TVs, an iPad, uh, video cameras. I need multiple service flows. So I don't need individual service flows that go to a gig. So could I split up my house as like an MDU? Could I think of my house as a multiple dwelling unit? and put half of them on one modem and half of them on another modem. So that household is getting maybe 10 gig, but I'm doing it through multiple modems that I can buy today. Right. And maybe that's, and maybe that's the solution for now until we get some Doxus 4.0 or 4.0 light modems. <laughs> like I could see a Doxus 4.0 light modem where the chipset itself just supports more, more blocks. Yeah. It's still a three one, but I need more blocks. And there are some operators that are doing that. They have like one modem for the set-top boxes, one modem for data, one modem for voice. It's not cost-effective necessarily, but it, it provides a solution to do what exactly you just mentioned. Correct. That is possible. All right, so uh, we'll get to questions in just a moment. I just want to wrap up the final track, which was day two. And I, I want to mention this to everyone. It, when, if you go to the light reading site and, and you see like day two, the topic is powering the grid. Some of these topics can be a little deceptive because under the topic of powering the grid, there are a number of subtopics. So for instance, this is the topic that I presented under, under powering the grid was also virtualization where we talked about virtual CMTSs, which was virtualization. And under this, the panelist was um, my, myself. I was under, on this one. Tui Nguyen from Intel, Chris Bastian from SCTE, Rob Wilmoth from Red Hat, and Clayton Wager from DriveNets. This topic, um, and I don't have any slides to follow up, so I'll just go off the cuff here because I know the topic pretty well. Our big focus was on virtualization, virtual CMTSs, and basically all the sausage making that goes behind virtual CMTSs. The unique thing about that I think we covered on virtual CMTSs was basically the um, how similar virtual CMTSs are to FMA technology, primarily from a standpoint, you know, virtual CMTSs run on Intel-based architecture. That's why we had people there from Intel and also Red Hat, because also the, the uh, software infrastructure is the same. The virtual CMTSs can run in a cable operator hosted environment, or they can run in what's called a cloud-native environment, meaning they could run in like an AWS or um, any similar type cloud um, hosted environment. Virtual CMTS is um, another topic of that is we, as we talked about FMA and, and other type similar related technologies and also DAA, it gives us tremendous cost savings, power savings, space savings. And, and so with some of the things that are happening in the world today, you know, 
power savings goes even far beyond climate change now. Um, it, it goes well into, and I won't, don't even want to get into the, the, some of the political topics, but power savings is really, really important now. And so that's another area that we get into with virtual CMTSs, even with FMA technology. So the blurred lines between VCMTSs and FMA become really interesting. VCMTS, as we talked about, gives us the ability to also expand. You know, a VCMTS can not just be a DOCSIS CMTS, it can be a PON device, it can be a 5G device, because it's basically something that's just running software. And I think we've covered these in previous topics before, John, but the, the expandability, the versatility of VCMTS is just awesomely cool. We uh, we just we did not have enough time on this panel to cover everything. This particular panel that I'm talking about now uh, cover all the topics because we got a massive amount of questions that came in, and we really just focused on covering all the questions on the panel itself. So again, I encourage everyone to to uh, review this panel, see that some of the topics that we had on there, and uh, and I think we'll have more of these uh, VCMTS panels coming up. It's just a even, cool topic. I, I can even envision you know a server farm that's underground. And above ground is a solar panel farm. <laughs> you know, you're grabbing all the energy you need from the solar panels, and then underneath you have geothermal uh, insulation because you're underground. Uh, and then you have a server farm. You know, and it could be anywhere. So if you could pick anywhere, you find some place that's nice and sunny with lots of sun, so you eat solar, and then you do fiber out from there to basically anywhere you want because it's digital fiber. So I mean, yeah, it's it could go a lot of different directions. It's obviously <laughs> got to pay for land. And maybe that's a good thing too. You find land is cheap or you find a place where they're giving huge tax incentives <laughs> yes. that you can. No, I'm, I'm definitely excited about um, uh, all the things that's happening in the industry, all the new technology that's come out. And, and a number of this was showcased at uh, the NGN seminar. So recommend people watch that um, new, and new things are coming out. Uh, so questions that have come in a chat room. It looks like it's been a lot of discussions. Um, thanks everyone for joining. Um, Rick, good to see you out there. Kyle, thanks for joining. Um, symmetrical service is still a marketing gimmick for fiber providers because it's relatively easy for them to do, but the vast majority of subscribers don't need that. It's just needed to compete. So thanks Rick for uh, pointing that out. I, I do think many times it is a marketing thing. I, although I, I, I just, I just want to push back on that Rick, because I know we will have some comments from people that are like content creators that are developers. There, there is a, a small subset. So I, I get both of this. I get both sides from this. Like I would say, and I think the numbers are something like 90 to 95% of consumers, subscribers are, are mostly like consumers. So it's like they, they are, they're just pulling downstream data. They're, they're Netflix viewers, they're Google watchers, but we have to be cognizant that there are, you know, five to 10% of subscribers that are actually producers of the content. Um, they might be like pushing a stream like I am right now that actually do need a larger upstream or larger downstream, or maybe they're small business owners that need a lot of content. So we have to be cognizant that while the vast majority are consumers, we have a small majority that are producers. And and those are those are the people that need that symmetrical gig service. So there is a legitimate legitimate use out there. Um, and, and Rick, another good point you made is the reliability. I think is something that the has been game changing in this industry. So for a long time, the cable industry was you know relying data service was just something that was a nice to have service. That's been a big change, and and I would say the pandemic was probably sh show the biggest spotlight on the rely the need for reliability on our industry than ever before when we were working from home and learning from home, and and data was our lifeline to everything. And I and I really believe that our industry is focusing on that. Um, something I'll throw out there: proactive network maintenance, and and so I've nimble this as a company that does that. That is the focus of PNM is to really to be able to identify problems before subscribers know that there are problems. So if you're a cable operator or you're a subscriber, I encourage everyone to be saying, we need more PNM and every network out there. John, any thoughts, closing thoughts as we're wrapping up? I mean, you talk about reliability or availability. Uh, Ron would tell us that there's a difference, right? Between reliability <laughs> and availability. Um, you know, the home device itself, you know, if I have a power glitch, my set-top box might go off and have to reacquire and all this other stuff. And then uh, 
we kind of shied away from UPS and battery backup. Like it wasn't really necessary or we did voice with battery backup, but then most people have cell phones. So they're like, ah, it's not really necessary. Uh, if the, if that goes out, I still have a cell phone. Um, but yeah, maybe that becomes more of a requirement again is home, not just home security, but home battery banks or sometimes a battery backup for some of your equipment. People have laptops, they have batteries, they work, but now your modem doesn't work because it doesn't have a battery. Um, so even if you have fiber to the home, well, the device that's on the side of your house needs power. So you're going to have to have some sort of battery backup for that if you want reliability, right? Or availability. Yeah. And you make an interesting point there for a while on the modem side, or particularly on the EMTAs, the embedded multimedia terminal adapters, which is a cable modem with a phone built into it. We were putting battery packs into those and now we kind of got away from that. As data becomes more important, I mean, I would encourage every subscriber to put a UPS on their cable modem. Um, they, they have, they probably have them on their computers, or like as you said, they have a laptop that will stay up. But if their cable modem goes down, they're going to lose it. I, I, I can't say too much about this, but on one of the cable labs working groups I am on, we are starting to look at, you know, our battery backups out there. So we, I think the industry itself is going to take a renewed look at battery backups. And that was something um, on the powering side that we, we talked about in this next generation, um, this NGN uh, work group. There was some discussion about powering and how we can monitoring the power grid, how we can monitoring power outages and battery backups. So that's going to be all renewed in the cable industry to make sure everything is battery backed up. And, and more importantly, are the batteries there? Are they charged? Is everything in place to make yeah. sure when the power goes out, the network stays up and stays available and reliable, as you indicated? The other, they are different. Yeah, the, the other option is the cable company, if they do offer, say, cell phone or mobile themselves, uh, if the cable goes out, a sticky app would be, we'll let you use your mobile as a hotspot for that limited time uh, that you're out. That way you don't lose connectivity. You use your mobile phone as a hotspot and maybe you don't get extra charge or something like that. So, I mean, that would be sort of an option if you have that capability to use it as a hotspot. Absolutely. And I think that is something that we've seen some cable operators promoting that you can, uh, you can tra traverse from your modem to your, to your cell phone. And um, even the, they offer that for business services where if your modem goes down, you automatically will be uh, taken to like an LTE service as a backup. So they have built in LTE modems in the modem. It's in the cable modem itself for high, continued high availability. Bringing that to every subscriber would be an amazing thing. So where your yeah. modems have built in LTE in them, LTE yeah. modems in them. And the one thing I wanted to bring up also was in, in regards to energy savings, it was about four or five years ago, Cable Labs came up with another idea called battery backup mode and an and energy management mode. So a low power mode in the modems. So whenever the modem went on battery backup, a, uh, CM, a CM status message is actually sent to the CMTS, say, hey, I'm on battery backup. So instead of doing 24 by eight, you know, 24 downstream by eight upstream, go to one by one mode. Yes. If I have one transmitter, one receiver in my modem, it saves energy, it saves the battery. So we even took it a step further and said, if the modem, say I go on vacation and there's no activity on my modem, I could save the home user some drainage of energy from their home if I just put that modem in one by one mode because no one's using it. So why am I in 24 by eight mode or even 34 by eight mode if I'm doing the three one modem? Yes. Like why now, not put it one by one? Now the so you know the one by one mode, meaning you're just using one channel, one downstream channel, one upstream channel, which is a very low power mode. That is something that has to be enabled um, using a MIB. It's not on by default, and I, I have actually not seen that being used very often by cable operators. So I'm curious if you have seen that. You know, if, if you're aware of that being implemented, or if that's something that that uh, is maybe a, a goal for cable operators to start it, it was, using in the future. It was one of those things that people ask for and we give it to them and they never use it. Yes. <laughs> yes. Or they say, yeah, it'd be great to have this. So we implemented it and it's there, but now you have to put something in the CM file. It's, yeah, the, it's a config yeah. file. It's a TLV exactly. that goes in the config exactly. file. So but, but I just haven't seen it used. Yeah, but the battery mode is a CM status message. So you don't have to do anything to the CM file. Yeah. But so, for the energy management mode, yes. So it, it's a little bit more logistics, I guess. So back office work. A goal for cable operators. Let's 
start using mm-hmm. low energy mode and modems if, if the mode but, but you think about it. it but you think about it the cable operator is like why do i care if it saves the home user energy <laughs> they might not care right i mean uh, it, they i mean it's a good selling point but then the question is how much do you really save i mean as a whole industry we probably save a lot if you looked at every single modem across a twenty thousand modem footprint yeah i'm sure it could save a lot you know? It's a great opportunity and a good thing to do. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, um, yeah, I think we'll go ahead and, well, let's see if we have any good things here. Wired Ethernet uh, cable at least. Yes. I have a battery UPS on my modem router. Good job, Cal. Good to hear yeah. that. And saving less with OFDM and OFDMA are enabled. Uh, I think that's probably a good point, too. Um, you know, we're, we'll just get it's OFDM and OFDMA are more bits per byte, so we're we, we get just more capacity through that. So there's probably no, an more bits per her, more, more bits, bits per, per hertz. hertz. Thank you, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> bits per byte, <laughs> bits per hertz. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> All right, John. So anything to plug coming up? Uh, we know Anga Anga in Cologne, Germany, uh, May. What is it? 11, 12, 13, I think it is somewhere around there. Um, I, I'm tentatively scheduled to go. So any one of my European friends out there, that are going to be there meet up with me and we'll talk, we'll talk to crap, talk some crap, <laughs> you know me. Um, so yeah, I should be out there for, I think Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday during Anga. Uh, it'll be nice to get out and actually see some people live. All right. Excellent. Um, I've got, uh, I'll be speaking at the Buckeye chapter coming up in, I think that's next week, and the Ontario chapter, I believe it's the week after that, or I'm, I'm off by maybe one or two weeks here, but I, I've got uh, two SCTE chapters coming up. The Buckeye chapter will be on uh, mostly full band capture and uh, uh, RXMER, and the Ontario chapter will be on um, OFDMA. So, And these are all remote, right? They're all rem- pretty much yeah, remote the, now. Yeah, these are all yeah. remote, so... Yeah. What were those dates, uh, Mia? The 21st for the Buckeye chapter and the 28th for the uh, Ontario chapter. So thanks, Mia, for reminding me of this. Man, that's the one thing that kind of, I don't want to say good, but it's a good thing that came out of COVID. It, it forced everyone to quickly get into remote training, figure out WebEx, figure out Zoom, figure out Microsoft Teams, yep. and be able to communicate uh, efficiently. So now it became real easy for good trainers to train anyone at any time for me to jump on a plane and go to a chapter meeting would have been tough. It's a large commitment to do that. Yeah. It's a day of travel, a day at the training or SET chapter and then a day back. So, and here, here you do it remote and you record it too. So you can watch it whenever you want. Absolutely. All right, John, thanks for, uh, thanks for joining us today. Everyone who watched, thanks for watching. Thanks for uh, all the great chat in the chat room. We will be back in another month. We have, I have a, backlog of listener questions that I've been sitting on. So we're going to try to tackle that backlog of listener questions, whittle it down, answer everyone's questions. So if anyone else has questions, please email us info at volpfirm.com. We'll try to get your questions answered at our next session. So long. Thanks everyone for watching. Take care. All right. April Fool's Day. I quit. I quit. (laughs) April Fool's Day. (laughs)